This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. All right, all right. Welcome back. Um, what are you guys drinking this week? Oh. I'm drinking a Waterloo sparkling water, black cherry flavor, and it's great. Oh, okay. Excellent. I'm ringing in another episode here with some scotch whiskey, but this is not my classic 16 Lagavulin. It's a 10-year-old Lafroy. Oh, Same okay. island in Scotland. Same very peaty taste and like afterburn to it. It's absolutely oh, delicious. So it's from the same island. I'm not f- super familiar with whiskey. Does that mean it will taste the same because it's from the same region? It'll taste similar, yeah, because there there are different ingredients that they source from like specific places. So depending on where your distillery Interesting. is, you mm-hmm. pull your peat logs or something from a specific spot on the water or on the shore or whatever. I don't like don't, I huh. <laughs> I know very little about sense. the making of scotch, and I hope to remedy that one day. But I have two delicious scotch whiskeys in my studio now. Well, more importantly, does it taste good? It tastes, well, it tastes fantastic. I love it. Our friend Tiffany would love it because she was gi- she was giving us some love for the Lagavulin on that one episode. But uh, mm. I don't think you would think it was good, Josh. Probably not. Sorry. Tiffany and I decided we were going <laughs> to- Maybe if I mixed it with some LaCroix. Oh, Ooh. no, you don't. Don't. We will return to this argument at a later point Don't because even. I have strong opinions about that. Uh, this week, I'm drinking, <laughs> I, I mixed two teas together, uh, Tension Tamer, and this new one I picked up that's like a orange clovey kind of thing, and they mixed really well, uh, except I broke the tea bag on the orange clove, so now there's like bits oh. of zest floating around, but I'm just pretending that they're like little treats, so... Little <laughs> treats. I have that going for me over here. <laughs> little treats they are. I love wow. that. So this week, uh, we made a discovery amongst ourselves uh, last week, and I've been wanting to talk about this for a while, that Emily and I know a decent amount about the study of cults, and Stephen, <sighs> you do not. Mm. No. Yes. No, I d- okay. Because I was a sociology, I have a sociology degree. Uh, Emily, you have one as well, right? Or a minor? Uh, well, it's part of my, because I did human services, so it's actually a combination of sociology history, and psychology. It's perfect. That's perfect. Look at you guys go. And I am the kind of person who does not get into a lot of pop culture when pop culture is happening. So if there are two things I am woefully undereducated on is true crime podcasts and Mm -hmm. cult shows on Netflix. This is why I don't know how our friendship has survived, because... Like Stephen knows, I was obsessed with serial killers, still am to this day. And he just, he didn't get Why it. Why are there not more female serial killers? Um, There are. We're just so good at what we do. This has been bo- That's funny. Wow. You know, what's really interesting to me, Stephen, is that wow. our backgrounds are pretty similar in a lot of ways. And I find cults and new religious movements so fascinating, especially on the theological level. And you just like haven't dived down that rabbit hole yet. 
Correct. Very true. Yes. Now's our chance. So what I'd like to do, if you'll permit me, Stephen, <laughs> is you just ask Emily and I anything you want to know about cults, and we can just see where it takes us. Oh. Like, I know that Emily and I don't know everything, but you coming from, like, such a beginner-level standpoint, like, I want to know what you want to know. Hmm. Okay. Let's start with the concept of, like, a cult is usually built around a single personality or, like, a figurehead type person. Sure. Is that always true? It is not always true. Okay. There's a misconception debunked um, there, right there. There are there some is. groups that uh, are borderline truly communal in nature. Like there is no hierarchy or no uh, single leader. Okay. I believe, I could be wrong about this, but the Oneida that were in upstate New York that um, died off after a generation because they believed in celibacy. Mm-hmm. I believe that they had no single leader. The Amish and like Mennonite and Hutterite groups that are new religious movements in the US, mm. they also do not have like a single charismatic leader okay. that they like venerate. So it's sometimes true. I would not have considered the Amish a cult. Is that what you're trying to say? So this gets at already we're in one problem. There's some problems with the word cult. Mm-hmm. The biggest one being that people will often use it as a pejorative and use it to dismiss a group entirely. So sociologists prefer the term new religious movement. So you might hear me say new religious movement or NRM. But also, I do sometimes use the word cult just because it's shorthand and it's a single word. So Okay. So I guess like one of the most low-hanging fruit questions I could possibly ask, because I don't even know this, is what would be the sociology definition of a cult or a new religious movement? That's a great question. And unfortunately, it is a question with, <laughs> with no clear-cut answer. What are common ingredients so, that we tweeze out? We could, okay, so maybe to like lay a base layer, since we're like here to talk theology, basically, um, imagine a spectrum. Like imagine a line that's going two different directions, and on one end of the spectrum is the institutional church. And that's like going, so one end of the spectrum is going towards equilibrium and institutionalization. And the mm-hmm. other end of the spectrum, you have a sect. And that end of the spectrum is going towards protest. And so that happened a lot during like the Protestant Reformation. That's a great example. Oh. So the early sociologist, Max Weber, did a lot of this early work where he talked about like- oh, Weber, re- yes. Where he talked about like religious sects forming and like that's what sparks a church actually changing. And so if you imagine this like sect church continuum, like one end going towards protest, one end going towards equilibrium. Denominations would be somewhere in the middle, right? So it's, there's like some institutionalization, but there's also like this air of protest, but it's also mm-hmm. not quite as institutional as like capital C Catholic church, super hierarchy kind of thing. Interesting. And even in the middle, there are like, the middle's very big. So you can keep that in mind right. too, where they're going to be plotted very differently on the spectrum. They're not all going to be like in the exact same point in the middle. Right. But then you can also see, Stephen, too, that there's, you could probably already think of some examples where this typology doesn't make sense. Like the idea of institutionalized sex, like a religious order in the Catholic church or something like that. Right. It's clearly like a bubble kind of thing within an institutional religion. Sure. And then you can probably 
already see that the idea of a new religious movement does not fit well into the whole sect church dichotomy mm-hmm. because sect usually means it like split off from the church in some way whereas like some new religious movements just, just like up, spring up on their own seemingly out of nowhere yes so unfortunately that i know i kind of like laid out that linear understanding for like the groundwork but like you can already see that kind of breaks down especially like when you can see groups popping up nrms don't land on that continuum right so to go back to your question though about like what would a sociologist refer to as a new religious movement okay currently a new religious movement in the literature usually refers to a religious movement that sprang up sometime since the mid 1800s oh and they usually follow some similar patterns to the way that a sect will break off from the church like there's some sort of disillusion or Mm -hmm. they like want to become their own separate entity separate from formal religion but those can like still be true even if it doesn't have a parent religion if that makes sense. Okay. Give an example of that. Um, of where a group sprung up on its own. Yeah. Just so people have an understanding. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is the the Rajneeshis in Oregon. Actually, my mom lived in Oregon when they were there. She remembers going to town hall meetings and some Rajneeshi members being at those town hall meetings. What? They were... Yeah. Do you know about the Rajneeshis? I... That's a new one for me. Okay, if you don't know about them, highly recommend the documentary Wild Wild Country on Netflix. It's a six-part, six or seven-part series. uh, Really highly produced, really interesting interviews on there. But they were they were centered around this uh, Indian guru named who named himself Osho, and it seemingly sprang up out of nowhere. Um, You could argue that it has roots in some Hindu spiritualism, but by and large, he did not like come from a specific religious tradition. It was mm. kind of when uh like following gurus was really popular. Sure. Oh wait, is this also um they're known as uh they or they I guess they used to be known as orange people? Was that? Yeah, they wore a lot of orange and yellow. Yeah, oh, you would recognize okay. pictures. Okay. Yep. Oh, how interesting. So, Stephen, does that kind of make sense about some of the problems we already run into like when we talk about cults? It very much does. Uh, I want to come back to the like the figurehead concept because that's what I hear about the sure. most. So that can that can be really interesting too because there's kind of the colloquial term cult of personality, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this is like I think this is particularly common in America where people would get a really popular following, and it almost seems cult like. And I think that we should acknowledge that that like people can have like these charismatic. Uh, tendencies and get these like massive popular followings but that in itself does not make something a cult or a new religious Mm -hmm. movement and i think that people's tendency to call people like that cults or cult-ish goes back to the idea that labeling something a cult is often dismissive and it's making a moral or value judgment yeah Mm, okay and so that's why a lot of sociologists prefer the term new religious movement is because like the definition is in the name and it clarifies what you're talking about versus like trying to make a moral judgment about something without actually defining it. Sure. But then when there's there's famous cults where, I mean, the phrase drink the Kool-Aid is a totally. phrase for us for a reason, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. uh, right. as I understand it, like cult leadership, the one guy kind of like convinced people what was about to happen and like through a party. Uh, man, I'm even betraying my... complete (laughs) ignorance even in that case but 
So there is there is a little bit though. What I was interested to talk about when I, I knew cult was coming up was kind of this uh, cult of personality actually tipping into new religious movement and almost the like the psychological manipulation that cults are often famous for. Right. Almost like a grooming effect. Yeah, that gets talked a lot about. Um, in the like 70s and 80s, there was a lot of anti-cult rhetoric, especially from the U.S. government, and they talked a lot about uh, mind control or brainwashing. And to be honest, that's been largely discredited by the science community. Mm-hmm. Um, people definitely prefer to use the term like psychological manipulation or pointing to the social setting that leads people to be more likely to do things instead of uh, like mind control. Mm, right right or yeah. brainwashing yeah so think about here's here's a really good thing to think about um because obviously every group is different and so some really good clarifications to think about when someone is assessing a group whether they are inside of it or they're looking at it from the outside which is a different perspective really good questions to ask are when and how for instance with christianity think about when and how christianity began Christianity did begin in the context of Second Temple Judaism. And so in that way, it like kind of started as a sect of Judaism in a way that like some other ones happened, like oh, what sure. the Essenes oh. considered a sect of Judaism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they were like, it, at some point they were ingrained. And then over time, Christianity became more institutionalized and more popular and has its own set of beliefs that are no longer restricted within Judaism. That's a really good example. Mm-hmm. Versus like if someone, I hear this on the internet sometimes, people like make the comparison like, well, Christianity was a cult at one point. And like there is a grain of truth in that, in that it was a new religious movement. But like people often use that phrasing in a way that they're trying to discredit something as reputable. Mm. Sure. Mm. And on the scientific level, that's a huge mistake. So what do you look for between like a cult of personality movement, what tips it into an actual like new religious movement situation? Um, number one, uh, there has to be religious elements. Um, for instance, uh, I did a lot of undergrad research on Alcoholics Anonymous in my uh, capstone project. Okay. And Alcoholics Anonymous, by definition, would not be considered a new religious movement because it is strictly spiritual, but not religious. Now, you might be able to like make an exception because like there's some oh. there's some similarities like you, there might be an argument to be made. But by the broad definition, it would not be considered a new religious movement. It also has to be started within the last uh, like one to two hundred years. Mormonism is a really interesting example because that was started in the 1800s. But it's so institutionalized right now. And we're like passing. I can't remember the dates exactly, but I believe we are nearing the 200 year mark. and by and large, most new religious movements don't make it past a generation or two. And so oh. I think that we will begin to see more people writing about Mormonism as a functional institutionalized religion instead of a new religious yeah, movement. Because it was founded as 1830. That's right. So yeah, we're we're readily approaching it. And you can kind of see how like the area there is kind of gray. Like there's no there's obviously no tipping point scientifically of like when does a new religious movement become a religion like the best Mm -hmm. thing you can do is look at a specific group and ask those qualitative questions like when did it begin how did it begin how is it functioning 
has anything changed and like look at a group really specifically mm. like you you your question was about like does charismaticism a charismatic leader always play a huge role mormonism is a great example because it was obviously started by joseph smith who was a historical person mm-hmm. and even though he died the movement itself has continued mm-hmm. and so even though it started with a charismatic leader it has existed after the fact which is pretty interesting like not every group is able to succeed in that there's the quote-unquote cult of personality around joseph smith however there is still quite a hierarchy that pushes all the way up into like the the president of the church of the mormon church so it's that's true still kind of is under like the dude right the figurehead true but they're but that when developed we're talking, over time. Right, right. I would, I would say that's an example of institutionalization. Sociologists like to make a distinction between charismatic authority and traditional authority. Like the Catholic Church is a really easy example of traditional authority. Like there's, there's a history, there's traditions, there's precedents for doing certain behavior. And in some ways there's like the authority of the old. Like we have to do it this way because other people did it this way. And Mormonism is an example of something that is beginning to encroach into that type of authority away from charismatic authority. Yeah, it's kind of gra- does that kind of make sense? Graduating beyond it now, huh? Okay, so yeah, you when you told us you wanted to do this as a topic, you sent us a TikTok that you had created in reference to <laughs> someone else. TikTok is one of those That's internet true. lands that I haven't even ventured into yet. Um, so I don't know exactly how it, it worked, but essentially like the beginning of it is a girl saying she just quit in and out burger because she feels like it's a cult. She said it was a cult. And then you came in and you were like, actually, hold on. No, it's not. And I, I want right. to, I want to hear your reasoning because I've certainly been in an, an employment situation where I don't know. I don't I I don't think there's anything quantitative or qualitative I can say that was like it was cultish, but at the same time like you just get that feeling, you know, that like sure I'm not uh, this this isn't normal, you know? If I had to summarize it, I think that the feeling comes from when somebody gives really specific rhetoric to defining an in-group versus an out-group. And that can happen in employment. Like someone can be in a weird employment setting. But if you are being employed and getting paid money to be somewhere, you are for sure. Well, I'm going to backtrack that. You are probably not in a new religious movement or a cult setting. Okay. With that said, some new religious movements have created businesses. Um, (laughs) Mormonism, Scientology, uh, several other small ones or sometimes like the members of a new religious movement will own businesses. Sure. But most likely you are probably not a part of a new religious movement in your work setting. If you are getting paid money to be there, because usually it's the other way around. Like usually you have to pay money to be a part of something. Interesting. Oh, okay. So that's the biggest, that's the biggest reason why an employer is most likely not a cult. Okay. But on the flip side, that doesn't mean, by extension, that anything you have to pay membership fees toward is a cult. Like Patreon, for example. (laughs) Like, just because you support someone's Patreon, like ours, like, if you support our Patreon, thank you, but you're not a part of a cult. Sorry. 
if that's right. what you're here or for. Or a gym membership. Or a gym membership or Knights of Columbus. Like you can critique an organization for sure, but just because you pay membership dues does not make it bad. So what would be what would be like the clear line then separation? Because I'm sure there are some people who would still say, yeah, but I participate in this and it feels like a cult. Like what would be the thing that you would say, okay, but here's what to look for. Like here's the thing, like the number one thing that you would find as a distinguishing factor. Like in terms of abuse? If yeah, I mean, it yeah, actually yeah, that'd be a that'd be a good. That's a hard one, I think, because like a workplace even can be abusive. And I think people have to make their own calls about whether or not a community is safe for, the, for them to be in. Because sometimes well, even so, you'll like feel safe in it for a while and then come to a realization that well, you so might like not want to be there. The the woman in that TikTok, you know, right. she quit and then you went into your your clarification. Right. So for her, though, like she chose to use that word for a reason. Why That's true. That? Uh, I think that in, in the video, I acknowledge this, too, that it's completely valid to acknowledge an abusive or a harmful or just a weird environment and acknowledge that you don't want to be a part of that. But that doesn't make something a cult. And mm -hmm. she was using the term, in my opinion, wrongly because she was using it in a way to like dismiss In-N-Out Burger by like labeling it a cult rather sure. than just talking about the details and saying, I didn't like this. They treated me this way. I mean, she did say some of those details, but she was trying to use the word cult in a really mm -hmm. dismissive way. Because I think it could come down to, like, I listened to quite a few, like, business and leadership uh, type podcasts. And I think it could come down to, like, maybe In-N-Out has done a good, d done such a good job of defining what they want their culture to be like and the kind of people they mm -hmm. hire that once you start deviating from that, you start feeling the pressure like, oh, I definitely don't belong here. I either need to quit or wait to get totally. fired, you know? But, like, we can't just lay the fact that... We can't lay it at the leader's feet just because they've they've done well in establishing what they want to be known for and what their business stands for, you know? So, like, right, I know we right. can't do that. Like, one of the things she brought up was, like, how they propagandized, like, being a part of the company, which, to be honest in my experience at least, is pretty common at most bigger companies. Like if you're not a small business with less than 15 people, usually there's some sort of culture on like moving up and this is a good business to be a part of. Like usually there's some sort of reinforcement and social pressure around that in my experience. Mm -hmm. Social pressure is but, one way to say it. I think another way to say it was just like they want to generously give you a sense of camaraderie. So it's like if you're a Starbucks oh, totally. employee in downtown Seattle and you visit Billings, Montana and you go to a Starbucks, you can be like, oh, this is interesting. Like this is a new way to see the thing we all have in common. Mm -hmm. Like it, it builds because it builds like a common uh, common ground among Starbucks employees. You, like there's a little bit of that to it as well. Right. Well, and I think that's where she is correct, too, is that a group that is trying to that is a new religious movement or cult they do use tactics like that. Like they totally use social pressure. They totally use um, like trying to establish a similar problem. Like, hey, you have this problem. I have this problem too. This is how we're solving it. They totally try to use empathy in a way that's beneficial for the group mm. in establishing mm. that sort of in-group, out-group thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, like there's a model that's in addition to Max Weber's 
church sect kind of model. There's another one that's referenced a lot called the bite model, like taking a bite out of something, B-I-T-E. And it stands for behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotional control. And Mm. some scientists will use this to talk about and dissect a singular group and like divide it into categories on what the group is or is not trying to do. For instance, like you could look at a corporate structure and talk about information control. Like a business might keep some things private from its lower level employees that like is on a need to know basis. But Mm. just that one piece of information control doesn't make them a harmful group. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like you can, the bite model is a good example of like, like picking starting points and like beginning questions of investigating a specific group, I guess, if that makes sense. Interesting. So Stephen, do you think you've ever been a part of a cult or a new religious movement? Wow. I'm not sure. That's kind of a loaded question. I know. Wow. And to be honest, you don't have to answer that if you don't want to, because there is a lot of gray area in the definitions themselves. How, how specific like, do we Sometimes need to... we don't realize something was a new religious movement until afterwards. Oh, yeah, totally. I could see that. So, like, let's, let's talk about it in the context of, uh, like, American Christian megachurch. Totally. Because I think, I think this, is, this feels like low-hanging fruit to me, at least. Um, totally, yeah. There, there are wildly famous churches in America today that are more known for the pastor's name for the church than they are for the church's name. Mm-hmm. And there's at least an element of like cult of personality. I'm going to keep using that phrase. Yeah, totally. There, there's an element of that where you, you come into uh, like membership on the volunteer team or you come into employment. Like I've heard stories of people who have quit Elevation Church with Stephen Furtick and mm-hmm. yikers, there's some, there's some stuff like if you are even on the volunteer team, you're not allowed to call Stephen Furtick by his first or last name. You are literally explicitly told to always call him pastor. Sure. And like, there's a mm-hmm. lot of language control around that. And you always stand up whenever he enters a room and mm-hmm. you know, th- there's stuff like that. So your thoughts on American megachurches. My thoughts are, I think that it is completely okay to acknowledge having been in a cult or a new religious movement and that if we have, we should not feel shame about that. Say more. Like, for instance, often we are blind to the culture surrounding us like a fish in water. Like, we're not aware of what we are steeped in. Like, the tea that I am drinking, the tea bags are not... Oh, that was a terrible example, actually. (laughs) The fish in the water is a better example. Um... (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, you know, the joke about the two fish swimming and one fish says to the other, how's the water today? And the other fish goes, the what? Mm. Like, Mm. like we are often so blind to the culture around us that is influencing our decision making and our behavior and our cognition. Sure. That sometimes we don't recognize those things and how they affected us until we're on the other side of them. Like when we go to a new country and we experience culture shock or we come back to our own country and experience Mm. culture shock. Mm -hmm. Or we're part of a group for a while and then we leave that group for a while and then we're able to like reinterpret our past experiences. So, and I also think it's good to acknowledge bad tendencies that we have been affected by in the past, like as a part of a group. And just because we acknowledge that a group was 
harmful in some way or kind of weird and controlling in some way, that it also doesn't completely write off those groups either. Like mm-hmm. that kind of goes back to the idea that like the word cults can be really dismissive and does not critically engage with critiquing a group's actions. You know so what I mean? Here's a question. Can cults be a positive or a healthy thing? I and think maybe so. That's kind of a loaded question. I don't know. I think so. The, I think this goes back to uh, you could call it media bias or um, confirmation bias that we're often more likely to remember the really negative circumstances surrounding new religious movements like Jonestown, like Stephen, you referenced Jonestown happening with the Kool Aid, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Uh, my the one I first thought of was the Rajneeshis, and there was a lot of harm done in those communities and to those people. Heaven's Gate, or we're also. Yeah, Heaven's Gate is really popularly known, or I just finished watching the new drama about the Waco disaster with David Koresh. Oh. We're much more likely, A, to know about, and B, remember the really negative circumstances that happened. But the reality is, is that there are probably thousands of little tiny microgroups that sociologists would generalize as new religious movements. But to be honest, not all of them are known about not very many of them are studied well and a lot of them get studied after the fact like when something happens like mm. a disaster mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but the, to be honest the majority in my opinion that i know about the the majority of new religious movements are not the doomsday or suicide causing massive cults but those are just the ones that we know about and they come stick to mind. out the most yeah yeah so mm. i would i would say yes a lot of good can be done by new religious movements. Christianity is a great example. Christianity at one point was a new religious movement and that's okay to acknowledge. Like that's not a bad thing. And I think that's a good example of like, we need to get away from the idea that like new religious movements are always harmful or always Mm -hmm. bad. Let me play with, Um, let me play with those definitions though, because I'm I'm looking at the the line graph that you spelled out for me. I sketched it in my notebook here. And of course you did. So as I, Hey, active listening fam, (laughs) (laughs) don't make fun of me i podcast a lot i need to do this okay so christianity though rising out of the second temple judaism as you already as you already gave us uh that uh that background josh right was christianity necessarily new because the way you described it is new religious movement doesn't fall anywhere on the the continuum of sect denomination to institution and I, I think maybe Christianity could have been considered just essentially a sect of Jews who actually believed that the Messiah did come, and then that sect kind of institutionalized itself as something separate from Judaism somewhere along the way, but it wasn't necessarily new. Am I arguing that correctly? I see what you're saying, but there, I want to say it would still be considered something different than just a sect of Judaism. Like, there were sects with like religious sects with within Judaism that were not trying to split off. And the fact that like Christianity was like moving a different direction than temple Judaism and the fact that it was including Greeks and non-Jews in a radical way. See, I'm not a church historian, so I wish I could speak to it better, but to me that says that it was trying to spark something new. Yeah. But from where, what I've, what I've read about, like especially if you try and kind of compile the the primary themes of all of Paul's messages he wasn't calling Jews to not be Jews anymore and become Christians he oh, totally. he was saying 
yeah, you're Jews. We just have the Messiah now. And here's here's my reasoning on how I can say that the Messiah has actually come. So it does still seem like it just arose on this continuum and was a sect and eventually did split off. But so like new. Totally. So calling it new religious movement was is a little weird to me. But sure. So, OK, bring it back to modern day. Can we say like. Uh, oh, actually, before we do okay. that, I think this is a good example of how there is often gray area and even like trying to define whether something is a sect right. or a new religious yeah. movement. Like, for instance, when Max mm-hmm. Weber was like talking about the sect church religion, he was doing it in the context of was he, man, was he post Protestant Reformation or is he right before it? But he was like doing it in the context of like near Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Church being like near state control Mm. like Mm. so when he talks about the church he means like there's almost no distinction between the nation and the religious institution okay and there's like almost complete religious control like a theocracy versus like denomination would be more close to what we have in america today where there's the churches do not control the government in any meaningful way um and there's clear separation between church and state Mm. okay yeah, I can see that. So when when Christianity arose, though, it was more in the context of there was l- more ambiguity between church and state. The nation of Israel was centered around religion. Mm, yeah. Okay. You know, so that's kind of an important distinction, too. And like, I, I do agree with you that like we're using modern definitions to talk about like antiquated religion. <laughs> totally. And that's also kind of a problem, too. Like we're, we're in modern times now and religious movements happen in different ways now. Mm, totally. That's so true. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us a five-star rating and a review, which helps others find the show. If you'd like to leave us a longer message, our email address is theravelpod at gmail.com. If you find this conversation valuable, please tell a friend about the show in person, with a text, or by sharing about the show on social media. You can join us on Instagram and Twitter at RavelPod. Thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color, off his album, Here. Find his work on Spotify and Bandcamp. And remember to subscribe to Ravel so that you never miss a new episode. Thanks for listening. So anyway, you you were going to ask a question. So then speaking of modern times and religious movements happening in different ways, can we say an American megachurch... Like, what questions would you ask? I feels like we can't dance around it unless we just name specifics, doesn't it? Would okay, Bethel in Redding, California. Let's great question. Let's talk about Bethel. Let's do it. I have read. I have read a book by sociologists that are studying Bethel and IHOP specifically. Ooh, what's the book called? Oh, the book is called "The Rise of Network Christianity," and it's about how what they're documenting is like changing the religious landscape in America and. Uh, politics aside, I think the political discussion about these churches is a different conversation, even though it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but their summarized conclusion is that they are documenting these churches that are, by definition and self-proclaimed, like independent of a denomination. They're like non-denominational, right? Right. But they're networking with each other, regardless of theological differences. Like Bethel and IHOP, for instance, do not agree about everything. They have some really defined views about some things that they butt heads about, 
but they continue to network with each other and cross promote at conferences and for book sales and sure. like mm-hmm. stuff like guest that. Speakers on sure. the pulpit. Right. Mm-hmm. And so one of the biggest takeaways from this book is that they're arguing that they are documenting a, a new form of Christianity like in a in a way that Christianity has not happened in America before and B possibly a new form of religious function. You'll notice I didn't say new religion. Wow. Okay. No. But like they they have not to their knowledge they have not nobody's documented a religion functioning in these ways before in a way that more closely looks like an organizational structure like a company than it does like a traditional institutionalized church like Catholicism. It's a fascinating book. Uh, if anyone is sociologically minded or really wants to dig into either one of those research points, totally recommend. We'll put a link in the show notes. But I did notice reading that book that they, and I believe they have a section about this, where they do not use the language, even new religious movement, to describe either one of these. What do they use? Um, they... They really try to focus on because it's a it's a qualitative research project. Like they went and mm-hmm. did interviews and like this was like years long in the making. If I remember right, it's been like a year or two since I read the book, but if I remember right, their angle was more like, let's look at these groups for what they are rather than just trying to like slap a label on them, like in sure. layman's terms. Huh. So like they were looking at things like finances and interviewing members and interviewing leadership and really trying to like break down how are these organizations functioning like on a practical level and to be honest i think that's a better question anyway like the bite model is a good example like you can ask questions about behavior and information and thinking and emotion and in some ways that gives you a lot more information than just like slapping a label on it in my opinion sure Mm -hmm. totally so like i don't know there's also groups evolve like sometimes a group is like happening in more of a denominational context and then over time eventually you realize oh like this is like way different than when it first started and that's really interesting like let's look at why it changed what what makes it different now compared to like when it started i think that those questions oftentimes are more important than just labeling for the sake of labeling so that's kind of why i'm skirting around Answering your question directly, Stephen. <laughs> okay, so we're—you'll notice I did. Yeah, that. <laughs> we're not—we're not in the business on this episode of just like calling cults cults and just like dragging yeah. that behind <laughs> us as if we have the right to do so. Okay, because we don't. Um, right, Emily. Yeah. I've been talking a lot, and I really want to hear from you. What are your What are your thoughts about this topic? I, I'm sure it's been a while for you thinking about oh, something it's like been this too. Ages, but one of the things that you. One of the things that you had mentioned, um, and I think I'm just thinking about my church context in general, is even within institutionalized church, so I'm just going to say, you know, like my church, Methodist church, whatever, I feel like there are unusual or maybe misunderstood elements to which people would point and say that it's cult-like. Um, so I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking back to sacraments. Oh, sure. Yeah. And it, it's just one of those things where you have to kind of sit for a minute and, and look at the other person's perspective. Cause Mm. we're so quick Mm. to say, no, this is just a part of who we are. It's our identity. Like this is a sacrament. And we try to, we try to describe it, but from an outside perspective, if people were to hear, you know, this is the blood of Christ, this is the, the cup of salvation poured out for you. This is his body. Like, 
some right. people would would for a moment be like, wow, that's very unusual. You mm-hmm. don't hear that often in institutionalized religion and not think that it's a cult. Right. And so oftentimes I'll I'll have, you know, it hasn't happened recently, but when I would tell people, yeah, I want to be a pastor, like I want to go to seminary, they're like, whoa, 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 you want to be a pastor? Like, you mean you want to like join a cult? And I like, I take a step back and I'm like, no, no, that's not what, that's not what I want to do. That's not a profession I wish to pursue. But that's one of the first things that people think of is because so often religious movements or groups have been, as you have said earlier, seen in a light that is cult-like or has had the label of cult placed on them. Um, and you just can't really escape that. Yeah, I think that's really true. Plus, um, you reminded me of the problem of ethnography. Mm-hmm. Did you ever talk about mm-hmm. this when you were studying? Stephen, do you know about ethnography? Not at all. Oh, enlighten us. Well, and please correct me if I get this wrong, because it's also been a while for me. Stephen, ethnography refers to when you have an outside researcher going into a community that they are borderline completely foreign to. And a lot of early uh, anthropologists and sociologists would do this practice a lot. And it's gotten a lot better over time, but it really led to some really complicated ethical questions about like the way in which you um, dissect and critique a community from the outside like not knowing about them and b not being a part of it and Mm -hmm. that that differs from the study method called participant observation yeah where you are like going into a context and like you are researching it but it is informed research it's consented research and you are like observing it as a participant also and so this is a good example of like something that we can do in our own context also. Like you don't have to be a scientist to be a participant observer. Like you can have a mindful eye about the community you're a part of without being like a scientific researcher. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what was interesting about this book uh, from the sociologists too. And they talked about this in their methodology. They're both Christians. Neither one of them are a part of these specific contexts, but like they would go to services and like attend there for a little bit to like, get ingrained and like gain the trust of people sure so that Mm. they they would be known as like you're not just outsiders you're on some level you're like a a part of this because you're attending there's this really famous example steven of the problem that can be held with just ethnography and it's this famous sociological study called the nasarima have you ever heard of this no i haven't Do you remember this, Emily? I do remember this. You remember this. Okay, okay. So uh, I'm going to kind of butcher this because there's a lot of details in it, but it, it's about a researcher who goes to this, uh, this tribe that's never been studied before, and it's mostly about their ritualistic hygiene and how they're like super obsessed with well, like cleanliness and like they, there's like an altar in every home that's like worshipped every day and sometimes for hours a day and... It's using all of this like scientific qualitative language and like really trying to get down to labeling like what these tribes are and like what they're about and like why they are so religiously clean and the way in which they worship things. And uh, then you find out that the whole thing is about Americans and toilets and brushing your teeth. Yeah, because if you pay attention, it's the word American spelled backwards. Oh, oh my. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> so it's kind of a funny satirical example. Um, I can find a link to it um, so you can read it. But that's a good example of how like if you're just a parachute researcher bopping in and like you're just trying to label things and you're not actually trying to understand the group for what it is, you can really fall into some pit traps. Totally. Totally. That is a really good so, example. So <laughs> I, like those are the things that I have in the back of my head when someone asks a question like, is Bethel a cult? Right. Is I have a cult? A is cult. elevation mm-hmm. a cult? Is Calvinism a cult? Is charismaticism a cult? Like on some level, yes. On some level, no. Like that's kind of a loaded question, honestly. You have to mm-hmm. like look at the groups mm-hmm. for what they are and like do your own analysis, whether or not you're a participant observer or you're on the outside sure. looking wow. in. Yeah, I think I think my main takeaway today is the difference between a new new religious movement and cult of personality. Yeah, yeah just because like you you can yeah. look at any famous person really and be and see some just like fanatical people behind them, right? Uh oh, look yeah. at Joe Rogan. Like one I wrote in my notebook as well was Jordan Peterson. Like mm, sure. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely have like cult followings in that they're super popular. Totally, but like so does Family Guy. You know, it's called like a cult TV show or Star Wars mm-hmm. or something like that. So, but it's not right. necessarily like creating a new religious movement out of the thing. Right. So. Yeah, exactly. The other oddball example that I could, I can't get out of my head when we start talking about cults is dentist office. Uh, okay. Wait, explain. What are you talking about? There's a way. Okay. So like you walk into a dentist office and the entire building, the company is named after the dentist right and and everything is like is structured around the guy who founded the thing he went and got his degree now he's starting up a dentist office and he's hiring all these people and you only get like a couple minutes in his presence and it's like a big deal for the hygienist to be like (laughs) let me invite the dentist in here and you're sitting and like whatever he says goes So he's like, hey, sure, you have a cavity. Sure. Like, and you don't you don't even ask like, well, can I see the cavity with like a, a mirror or like an x-ray or something? You just you're just like, Yes, sir, take it out, please. Give me a filling. Like <laughs> there's there's almost I don't know. I something about a dentist's office feels a little culty to me. <laughs> okay. Uh Emily, why would a dentist in your mind not be culty or a new religious movement? How would you combat oh, that? Oh, I mean, I see that okay. now, but yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm curious to hear what Emily has to say. Well, because I think that's kind of an interesting example because to be yeah. honest, like those are some really good examples of what some people would label quote unquote cult-like tendencies. Cult-like, yeah. It oh, really put me on the spot here, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Go back and forth. Go back. Yeah. Well, so I guess the first thing that I would say is because there's nothing separating a dentist's office from any other realm of like the health profession, like it's not an unusual practice. And it's not that the dentist is solely saying, hey, I am your dentist. So therefore, like you all must participate in this activity and you can't question my authority. Like I know when I go to the dentist office well, and my dentist sa- and my dentist says, hey, like we've noticed you have some cavities and I'll be like, Oh, well, well, what are my options? And they can say, well, you can either like do this, you can do this, you can do this. And so there's some collaboration taking place. Okay, a little bit. However, I will counter with between my senior year of high school and me moving out of my parents' house, like I became an adult. I was in charge of scheduling my own dentist appointments. I didn't, fam, for seven years. And I went back to the dentist and they were like, 
there's nothing wrong. Like things must have went well last year at your last annual checkup. And I was like, no, I actually haven't been here in seven years. And they're like, oh, wow. Well, you definitely shouldn't do that. I'm like, why? I just proved for seven years that I don't need it. (laughs) That's funny. So, I mean, there is a little bit of the dentist being like, you have to come back. You have to be here. But they're not they don't hunt you down if you don't. Depends on if you if you move or not. That's that's what I did. So like the de- <laughs> it would also be different too if like the dentist you went to was like no like like and progressively got to this point where uh they were like you know I don't want you to see any other dentists in town like just like forget that they're there like and also I don't want you to move out of the state because like <laughs> I'm I, like I'm the best dentist and. I can give you reasons why, but like, we don't need to get into that, but you should just know that like, you should never move. Also, there's no, like, there's no (laughs) devotion directed towards like the dentist or the dentist's office. Oh, true. Even though there is a flow of money, like you are paying the dentist. But there's really no devotion, like directed specifically towards Mm -hmm. the dentist or the dentist's office. And... I don't consider their practices to be strange or sinister or unusual in any way. Like dental well, hygiene is not bizarre to me. Some people might disagree, but yeah. Also, I mean, they also it's not like you may the be dentist. Uncomfortable, but it's not. Sinister. You made me think of another instance of behavior control, Stephen. Where like it would be very distinctive if your whole family was going to see this dentist, and then at some point your sibling, I don't know, like had to move out of state and like had to stop seeing this dentist. It would be really different if this dentist then said, hey, um, so yeah, your sister who moved, um, you guys, you aren't allowed to speak to her anymore. She's not allowed to do that. <laughs> oh, okay. Like some leaders do that. Like that's a really yeah, sure. real form of behavior control. She's and lost like, to us, right? She's not part of the flock. Yeah. Social reinforcement. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. I will counter one more time with there is a level of indoctrination at the dentist f- office because like if I ask, if I ask you to totally what's the. What's what? What's the commercial jingle that comes to your head when I say Billings Dentists? Brewer They're... Dental Center. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Proved my point. But that but does go that back is to different. That <laughs> yeah. is a that is a psychological strategy from a marketing perspective to increase loyalty. That, that's that's and. That's touching a different, that's touching a, I feel like that's touching a different area. Cause I feel like cults don't necessarily market in that way. Like, I don't think, I don't think Jim Jones had a catchy little jingle to get people interested in joining or, you know, I don't think Waco has a catchy jingle or, you know, Hey, here's this catchphrase that will really get people's attention. That that's I. Mm, so what happens when the, when Brewer Dental Center has successfully turned me into evangelist, and I tell everyone I know that they should go to Brewer because they're amazing, and the dentist is so nice. So like that goes back to I'm obviously messing with you guys, but like <laughs> yeah, but that that goes back to my example about like how a company can utilize social reinforcement and propaganda. But just those things don't make something a new religious movement. Like, sure, absolutely. Social referral is a thing. And like, that's how like small religious groups recruit people is because of like friend and family referrals. Oh, absolutely. It is. And it's totally like using a psychology, but it totally is. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm hearing you say is, Stephen, is I should just recommend the crappiest dentist and see how your experience goes. Or unplug yourself 
from your cult dentist and don't go for seven years and prove to yourself that you can keep your teeth clean on your own. Which I don't, I, this is not medical advice, I, and I do go to the dentist every year now, okay? I have to make that clear. <laughs> you should go at least twice a year, Stephen. Um, okay. Agree to disagree. Well, to bring it back around from the dentist, as enlightening as this conversation is, um, Emily, you mentioned something earlier about like how you don't think dentists are sinister or strange, and... <laughs> I'm a little thrown by that comment because, like, I don't think that that's a requirement for something to be a new religious movement or even I to agree. be a harmful community. I agree. I that was one. It's one of the first things that pop into mind, and maybe that is, maybe that is my fault of that label being placed on there. That is, however, and I guess when I say sinister, not like evil, like plotting, like ha ha ha. But strange in the sense that it's just outside a norm and it's it or just ulterior motives. It's an ulterior motive and it's it's giving it an impression that, you know, something will or will could or will happen um, if, you know, you oh, if you join, you know, you'll be safe or if you join, mm. you know, you'll prosper if you join A, B and C. But something could happen. There's almost this ulterior thing behind it but it doesn't always have to necessarily be evil or sure totally or harmful right. but it does give an impression of something could happen or will happen if a b or c i almost think of like mm. in like business like a pyramid scheme company where if they say if you attract so many people to participate to buy these products to sign up you you'll have these but something could happen if you don't like you need to mm. be successful in this mm. but really we see that the pyramid scheme doesn't work and that to me is sinister yeah yeah i would agree i think that there is a difference between um people who have uh like use that language of like this is the way out or like this is the way to something like whether it's salvation or mm -hmm. success or something like that versus like someone who is clearly trying to like take advantage of people and yeah. profit off of people. Like for instance, you made me think of AA, like a lot of AA members will use sure. that language to, I mean, you could call it recruiting, but they would say to someone who's alcoholic, like, yeah, this is the way out. Like yeah, if you don't that, join yeah. this, you could die because you're alcoholic. Totally. But like nobody is profiteering off of that. All right. That's so, kind of an interesting example. You know what else you made me think of is that we haven't even like talked about theology like in this whole thing. Like we've like kind of stayed in the like psychosocial. We haven't even like scratched the surface on like some of the theology of new religious movements. Mm, and that could go in many directions. Is that where you wanted to go when we started this, Josh? I mean, it's a place we could go. Okay. I was prepared for several different rabbit holes we could have jumped down. Nice. Never thought you would well, talk okay, about so dentists, then, though. So, <laughs> threw a curveball at you. Right. So, I guess maybe as one quick question. Well, well, here's okay. what I would say. Like, this is something I have on the top of my head. Just because something has wrong, what quote unquote wrong, what you would consider wrong, or visibly harmful theology, that in itself does not make it a new religious movement. And like, I think that the labeling of that anyway is like kind of a mistake. Like, it's just sure. dismissive, right? And also, I think that some new religious movements get, or like theology gets wrongly attributed as just associated with a certain new religious movement. 
For instance, mm-hmm. uh, Seventh Day Adventist. Do you know anything about the beginning of the Seventh Day Adventists? I do not. Do you, Emily? A little bit. They started as a doomsday group, Stephen. Oh. They like they had a date for when Jesus was going to come back. They dressed up in white robes. They stood on a hill. They were known as the Millerites. And Jesus did not come back. And they were one of the few groups that were like doomsday millennial-esque that thought Jesus was coming back on a certain date that has since survived as a group past that date. Mm. They didn't self-implode. They've like continued to like grow into like what is arguably a denomination now, um, even though some people would contest that. Some people really attribute the idea of Jesus coming back and like the second coming and like something, whatever the person's view is, something happening at the end of time or when Jesus comes back. A lot of people associate that with cults or new religious movements or doomsdayers Mm, or groups imploding. And like, I think that association is just made in the popular mind. But like, just because like some groups that imploded had that kind of theology, that doesn't like discredit theological views. And so I think that that's a really good thing to hold in tension too, is that like, even if you get to the point where you can label a certain group, a new religious movement or like cult-like control-y type behavior um, Mm -hmm. where it's really in-group focused and there's obviously abuse that happens, even if you get to that point of labeling, that doesn't completely discredit their theology. That's a good point, especially, well, and actually the Seventh-day Adventist is a great example because from my understanding a lot of the basis came from daniel the scripture found in daniel that talks Mm. about the second coming and this Mm -hmm. second like awakening this great awakening um so yeah we can't discredit what their biblical interpretation you know we we can't discredit that because for all we know like what if they were right you know we like we don't have the basis to say who's right and who's wrong and again is it harming anyone to really think that like it, it was life giving in that moment. And for those people, so we can't, we can't say, well, they were wrong. Right. Like they might've been wrong about the date, but like in those moments, it felt meaningful to them. And yeah, we have to acknowledge that. I think for any group too. And I think it points us to look at ourselves and our own religious Mm -hmm. upbringings and to say, what are some things that people might look and say, Whoa, that's like, you know, again, well, like sacraments. What is yeah. happening here? You know, and mm-hmm. we, you know, it's life giving for us, and maybe for others it's not. But again, we, they, you know, we can't discredit others as others try to discredit us. It's just that's a very, that's a very uh, downward slope to to go down. Yeah, if we were to to focus on that, but that's a good point. To be honest, the last couple years, I've really. I've really liked the idea that you can agree with some things that someone says, but not be pressured to agree with everything they say. And I really like applying that on the flip side to something like new religious movements. Like someone can be wrong about something, but that doesn't mean they're wrong about everything. Right. And I think that's good to acknowledge too. Like this last year um, in some of these uh, cults of personalities in Christianity, there's been several uh, public Mm. prophecies made about certain events and some people have rescinded those and apologized for those because they've realized in hindsight sure. that they were wrong. But that, I watched one of those and he made the argument that like, that doesn't make someone a false prophet just because you like, just because he was wrong about one thing. And right. honestly, I kind of agree with that logic. Like you can, you can be wrong and have theology that in hindsight you realize was wrong. 
But I think that A, that doesn't mean people are wrong about everything. And B, if we are in that position, I don't think we have to feel shame about that, even though we can like look at our past selves mm. and realize we were That's incorrect important. or misinformed. And like what you told Stephen very early on in this episode, you don't have to feel shame. Like if you did come from a new religious movement, you know, there's no shame. Like you don't have to be shameful of that. And the same Mm -hmm. goes for that. That question came out of left field, Josh. Like I wasn't expecting to be asked that. And sorry. Well, to be honest, I still don't know if I can answer the question because I feel like we've. I think that's okay. Well, there's like we've offered no concrete like these three things at least you know here's a list of 10 things and these at least three of these things must be true it's not like the dsm5 we can't do that it's not so i don't know unfortunately sociology (laughs) is a little bit more complicated dang soft sciences yeah (laughs) but i do think that i mean maybe emily's done this less than you or i Stephen. like i think that a lot of people have but like us have a lot of like past church experiences. And I, I like get the sense that there's this tendency out there for people to look back at past experiences and past groups and be like, well, like I now disagree with that. So like that must've been a cult. But I think that that's too easy of a mistake for us to make because that doesn't make us critically think about those groups. And it just like slaps on a label to dismiss them. Totally. Right. And what good does that do? In my opinion, not much. Exactly. Steven, what other questions are rolling around in your head? I know we're like kind of nearing our end time here, but what else are you thinking about now? Like now that you've kind of dipped your toes into the, <laughs> the like cool the sociological, of- the Kool-Aid, now that you've dipped your toes into the Kool-Aid oh my gosh. of sociology. <laughs> I honestly now like I'm doing exactly what we just proved we can't do is just like, I'm just thinking of like specific people or specific organizations where I'm like, are they, mm. are they though? No, but like, I think that's good. I think it's good to think of the specific organizations and think critically about them. Mm, yeah, that's that's the key is to think critically. So what are the like what are the said, critical thinking skills or questions we all should be asking ourselves if we're kind of looking up after listening to this episode and thinking like, am I part of a cult? To be honest, I think it's two things. I think number one, people want to know if something strays away from quote unquote historical Christianity or Orthodox Christianity, like does this group have views that are not in line with the majority of Christians, either current or historical? Like for instance, Mm. does a group uh, like this is, this is a kind of a cliche example because there's so many groups that this has been true for, but does, does this group believe that a single person is Jesus like Mm. a real Mm -hmm. person right now? And like, that's a different view than most Christians. Yeah. So I think that people, when they look at the theology of a new religious movement or a cult that seems pretty Christian, I think most people are looking for those answers, to be honest. Yeah. And they want to know like where a group differs in theology compared to the rest of Christianity or major denominations, stuff like that. Like people want to know what makes a group different, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other big question, and this is a little bit less theological and I think is done more like on the scientific or qualitative level. People want to know like what a group is doing to control its members. Hmm. Like for some Mm. reason, people are really interested in the idea of mind control and like, is this group controlling my aunt? Like, is my aunt in a cult or something? Like people are really interested in whether or not a group has too much influence over someone. 
whether or not that can happen. But that's valid. I think those I think those are pretty interesting questions myself. Like and I think that we can ask those questions and get more information from those rather than just asking the question, is blank group a cult? Because that doesn't really get us anywhere, in my opinion. Emily, what else would you add to this? Like what what's on your mind here? I guess, and we've we've mentioned it, but it's an, it's something worth mentioning again that again, you know, there's no shame in it, but also they can be positive things, places, experiences, and they can provide good things. And I think that's where the critical analysis, those critical questions that we ask, if those bring to light not positive things, you know, if there are means of control and they are not healthy in any way, shape, or form, then it's okay to acknowledge that and and to mm-hmm. break away. It, just because you love it or you are passionate about it does not mean you have to stay if it is not life-giving, if it is not healthy, you know, and and it's okay to kind of break away. But the same applies, you know, if if something is life-giving and does help you, you don't need to put it on such a pedestal to where it becomes something more than what it actually is. Mm. And that's where, like, I think sometimes the cult language can be so blown up. I think of Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and things like that. Like, you love them and they're great, but they are stories and they are, you know, fiction works. We don't need to epitomize them to something more. Wait, than Frodo wasn't are. real? We can have, I know, <laughs> Harry Potter was not a real person. My mother's going to probably die in her chair when yeah. she hears this. Dixie and I, we were just talking the other day. And she's like, I still think Hogwarts is real. And I was like, which is That's worse? Funny. I was like, Dixie, which is worse though? Hogwarts is not real. And we all live in a world where J.K. Rowling wrote a <laughs> bunch of great books. Or Hogwarts is real and you did not get invited. Mm. which is worse mm. you're just a muggle See? that's funny <laughs> steven you made me think of a couple other questions actually like i'm just thinking of this now a couple years oh. ago um i gave uh like a presentation to the youth group i was volunteering at uh, because we did like a tough question series and yeah some right. of the questions we got were like about cults so i like kind of went through some of this with them and one of the things that i mentioned at the end was and i didn't even think about this until now was that we can ask questions about like the leader, we can ask questions about the group, we can ask questions about the claims and doctrines, and we can ask questions about the checks and balances. And by asking those questions, that can really tell us a lot about the health of the group and what the group is trying to accomplish. Checks and balances seem so important. Yeah. I love mm. that that is explicitly named. Like for instance, that can tell us about whether or not there has been abuse of power, whether or not there's a history or a likelihood for abuse of power. Sure. Yeah, that can really, those, those questions can really tell us a lot, those types of questions. Absolutely. Well, I don't really know if we ended on any like sort of conclusionary note on this one. I feel like we kind of bounced around a lot, but. Hey, um, that's okay. I hope you, I hope you learned something, Steven. I don't know if you did, but. Uh, no, my main takeaway is literally the, the difference between new religious movement and cult of personality. Because I totally. feel like it's way too easy to see a cult of personality and say, there's something mm. a lot more fishy going on than just this person is good at talking in front of people, you know, and inspiring totally. people to action or to ideas, you know. So I think that's my main takeaway there. If you want to join our cult, we have a Patreon. 
<laughs> Patreon.com slash Ravelpod. Uh, jump in on the action here. Join us in our Discord server. We actually record in that in this very same Discord server that you'll be invited to. Come hang out and uh, tell us where we're wrong, tell us where we're right, and just we'll join community, join conversation together like this. Yeah. Also, if anyone out there has been giving us a five-star review, we've seemed to be accumulating more of those lately. So thank you so much. Those are so nice. Thank Honestly, you. that really means a lot for that feedback. Uh, Emily, will you end this for us? Will you give us a nice benediction out? Oh my, may, where do I begin? May we all all lift our glasses of Kool-Aid. <laughs> Here we go. No. Dang it, why didn't we say we were drinking Kool-Aid this week? I'm sorry, that's really offensive. That was a no. missed opportunity for sure, that wasn't was it? That was a missed opportunity. Just know we all have questions and we all want to get to the bottom of these scenarios. And sometimes we just can't, but we can still critically analyze and self-evaluate to find ways of having wholesome, authentic, and healthy lifestyles. And sometimes cults are okay. Just know that it's okay. Wow. There's the ending. There we go. How the hell do I give a benediction for something like that? Oh my god. <laughs> that is by far the strangest benediction I've ever given. Well Just played. Just know that, okay? Well Just played. That. Just know okay. that cults are okay sometimes. Cults are okay. Wow.